Well, here we go. We come to Jonah chapter 2. We're going to cover the entire chapter, verses 1 through 10 today. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We get to cover one of the most controversial books in the Bible, right? Like, like we get to cover, like we, at Grace, we just kind of go right at it, right? Like we just acknowledge. If it's in the text, we're going to talk about it, Right? Well, here's the thing. This passage is not controversial so much because of a social position, a political position, or an economic position. No, this passage is controversial because people have been arguing for something like 3,000 years whether or not a man can fit in the belly of whatever this thing is, whether it is a fish or a whale. How many of you have looked at some YouTube documentary on Jonah and if you can survive in a whale for three days and three nights? How many of you have ever had that at a Christian school, in homeschooling? I didn't get it in the public schooling. I know I had questions for mom. She was my Sunday school teacher, right? I don't want to get tripped up on that. Here's the thing. February 1891, a man named James Bartley was on a boat called the Star of the East off the coast of the Falcon Islands right off the Atlantic side of Argentina. He fell overboard. He was on a whaling ship, fell overboard. Yes, was swallowed by a whale, and guess what? Something like a day and a half, two days later, that whale was harpooned, reeled in, opened up, and guess who was there? James Bartley. He was unconscious. They put him down in the infirmary, down in the brig. I don't know the Navy very well. It's not worth knowing. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The man revived, recovered, and got back to work. We love you, sailors. My grandfather was in the Navy. My best friend's a sailor. No, my best friend's my wife. I should not have said that. All right, at any rate, at any rate, let's move on. I don't want to get bogged down in historical details because here's the bottom line. If you believe that God created the world, if you believe Jesus got out of the tomb on the third day, you accept this as historical because Jesus Christ treated it as historical. If you don't believe that, you will probably be skeptical. It really comes down to what do you believe? Everything reduces down to your worldview. Everything is a faith position, right? Here's what we do learn in the text, and here's what we get to hone in on today, and it is this. God answers. God answers. He answers his children's cries. He answers us in our distress even when it is a mess of our own making. Our God loves us. Even when we are wayward, he moves to us when we move to him, even when we're rebelling, even when we don't deserve it. I mean, just look at verse two, right? Look at verse two. Verse two should rock you. Let's review. We can get too familiar with Jonah and his story. God said, go to modern-day northern Iraq and Nineveh. There's still the Nineveh province. My old unit was stationed there. Jonah was supposed to go east to Nineveh. Jonah went west to Spain. He went in the opposite direction. This is flagrant, open defiance of God by his prophet. This is not good. This would have made CNN in 3000 BC, 700 BC. Jonah, as we find him, is in the water. He is in the water. He is in distress because he is rebelling against the Lord. Jonah is knocking on the doors of Sheol, knocking on the very doors of death, the place of death and despair. With that in mind, verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Did you hear that? God answers Jonah. God hears 
a rebellious prophet's voice. Is there hope for you? Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. There is hope for you. Our God answers. Our God hears. This is what we're unpacking. This is what we are doing. And as we learn, as we see your God, my God, our Father's mercy, his grace, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, it should bow our hearts to King Jesus all the more, make us want to follow him all the more. Why? So that in our times of trouble, when sin comes a knocking and we jump into it, we will run to him and not pull away. Amen. That's good. That's good. Here's the four places we're going to go this morning. I don't think we have a slide. I'll just go ahead and let you know. The four places we're going to go are this. He will answer you despite your guilt. He will answer you despite your guilt. Number two is this. He will answer you despite your circumstances. He will answer you despite your guilt. He will answer you despite your circumstances. Number three is this. He will answer you despite the underlying idolatry. And the fourth and final thing that we will see is this. He will answer you, but he will answer you in ways that you never expect. Despite your guilt, despite your circumstances, despite the underlying idolatry, and in ways that you would never expect. Let's go to the first one. He will answer you despite your guilt. Go with me to verse 3. Let's read verse 3. Jonah is guilty. Jonah is under judgment. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Let's go back and let's look at some of the details. I want you to see that Jonah is under judgment. The Lord God is active against Jonah. Go back to line one. Who cast Jonah into the deep? Was it the sailors ultimately? No, it was the Lord God. And that phrase, cast out, should remind us of the garden, should remind us of Cain after he murdered Abel. Look at that phrase, the third line, and the flood surrounded me. You can translate that this way. The waters prowled around me. And whose waters, whose waves, whose billows are prowling around Jonah like a lion? Your waters The Lord God's waters. Do you see that the waters are doing the Lord's bidding? That God is doing this against Jonah? Jonah is in what we call time out. He is going somewhere and thinking about what he did. He is under judgment. God is the actor here. God is using his waters as he so often does in the Bible to bring judgment, and they obey him. Think about it, right? Think about the flood, right? The word is there, flood. Think about the flood, Genesis 6 through 9. Jonah is a prophet like Noah, but Jonah would be outside of the ark. Think about Israel. Think about the Red Sea. Jonah is a prophet like Moses, but where is Jonah going? Down to join the Egyptian army. Do you see the irony here? Do you see what our God is doing? May I just say, and this is going to have some bite today. Some of you are here today, and you are in Jonah's position. You are feeling the weight of guilt. You are feeling the heavy hand of judgment over a self-inflicted wound. 
The guilt you may feel might be the result of your temper, where try as you might to get it under control. It feels like a hurricane has just ripped through your home for what feels like the thousandth time, and now your kids dread it when your car or your truck pulls into the drive. You may feel guilt. You may feel guilt over your harsh words. Have you battered and crumpled the smile and the electricity out of your wife's eyes? Have your harsh words layered up to where she no longer even cries because she's just gone numb to you? Ladies, ladies, do you feel guilt over constant nagging and using words to pinprick, to needle your husband into getting what you want from him and you invert the headship? Have you felt his affection run dry as it bleeds out like death from a thousand verbal paper cuts? Do you feel guilt in other ways, possibly over a straying heart, whatever that straying looks like? Do you feel guilt over concealing your spending habits and the debt that is mounting or the, the habits that you just cannot control? Do you feel guilt? Do you feel guilt over an addiction that you cannot stand, but you cannot kick? Are you here and are you wondering, this is me, I'm Jonah. Will God hear my prayer? Will he listen? Do I have hope? And you would be right to ask that. I know because I've been there. I've prayed that myself. Will he hear your prayer? Will he? Will he? And how do we know? Read verse 4. Read verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Despite Jonah's guilt, he looks to God's temple. He looks to the temple mount on Jerusalem, and that being God's footstool, he's looking up into heaven above, and Jonah, who is under judgment, the prophet who has provoked the Lord God, cries out, and his voice still enters heaven's halls, despite his guilt, despite the judgment. Do you see that? Do you see your God's heart? Do you see his compassion? Do you see his mercy? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever known that? Do you want to? Oh, friends, we're all like Jonah. We've all made messes, or we are all making a mess, or we will all make a mess of life at some point. The Lord God will put us under the heavy hand of his judgment just to get our attention. In those moments, he is bringing the mess. He is bringing his judgment to bring your repentance. I'm not trying to sound like, like some hellfire and damnstone preacher. Damnstone? Damnation? Help me out. What am I trying to say? Brimstone and hellfire preacher. As you can see, I'm not very good at it. But this is what the text calls us to. It's awkward. It's not fun. Imagine being in my shoes and for five days this week hearing all the areas I need to repent of. But we got to go through it. Why? Our God is not being mean. He is being merciful. He is being merciful. What do you do when you're in the midst of the mess? What do you do when you are in the midst of his judgment? You look to him in his temple and you cry out to him. Your voice, 
if you are in Christ especially, is still heard before his throne. This is the beauty of the gospel. You get something better than Jonah. You get Jesus enthroned, interceding for you on your behalf, his perfect blood, forever shielding you from God's wrath, forever proclaiming, this is my son. And your voice through Jesus Christ in the gospel gets an audience before the Lord. Say amen. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you feel the heavy hand of judgment upon you? That's his hand turning your head to behold him. That is his hand turning your head to behold him. Wherever it is that your life is off, whenever it is that your life is off, draw near to him, go to him, and cry out to him. In fact, that's our first application point. Cry out to him. He really will answer you, even despite your guilt. That's one. What's two? What's the second lesson that we learn? The second lesson that we learn is this. He will answer you despite your circumstances. He really will answer you despite your circumstances. Let's go to verses 5 through 6. Let's read this. Let's read this together. Verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Wow. Wow. Let's look at this. Let's go back to verse 5. Look at how detailed this is, right? Like, this is not the day and age of scuba divers, right? If you want the historicity, there you go. How does Jonah know there's seaweed at the bottom of the Mediterranean Ocean, right? Like, that's detail. That, that, that's vivid. That's in color before there was black and white TV, right? Like, this is hyper-vivid. Jonah has hit bottom. He is entangled in the seaweeds. How many of you have ever been under the water and seen plants drifting, swaying listlessly in the current? How many of you have seen that on like a National Geographic special, some kind of documentary? You know what I'm talking about? This is how I envision Jonah, just drifting and swaying helplessly, trapped, powerless, and unable to save himself. The vivid picture continues. It intensifies as we move to the mountain. Jonah is at the base of the mountains, and you can translate that as he was in the crevasse, the cut between two mountains. Hang on to that. This is going to be very important for later. Jonah is in the crevasse, the cut at the base of two mountains. He has hit rock bottom. It even goes worse. In the Hebrew faith and many ancient Near Eastern faiths, they believed that the bottom of the oceans was a gate to Sheol, that the doors of death were there, and when they closed in behind you, it was over. It was done. Jonah says, I have hit rock bottom, and those gates are closing on me. Do you see Jonah's dire circumstances? There is no sailor, there is no submarine, there is no scuba diver, there is no lifeline. Grace Church, in this life, we will have times where our self-inflicted wounds seem fatal. The life preserver is out of reach, not even teasing you because it's so far above you, floating on the ocean shores while you sit there below. You will feel like you've gone too far, and there's no point in even trying to coming back up for air. 
It may be in your marriage where the fires of passion, the fires of compassion have turned into cold, wet ashes. It may be a child who has grown up and written you off. It may be a part of your character that keeps sabotaging friendships and families, but you're there. You're below the waters, wondering how you got there, wondering how it got this far. You're not even kicking or struggling or failing to come up for air anymore. Why? Because deep down you get, all is lost. I cannot save this. I cannot fix this. God has brought you to the point where you see clearly that you cannot fix it, you cannot solve it. What do you do? What do you do? What's your game plan? What's your go-to in this moment? Let's read verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What do you do when the waters have closed over you and you are going down? You remember. You remember. You remember. You remember that your God is the one who made the waters. You remember that your God is the one who made the waves. You remember that your God is the one who made those very weeds. He is the one who made them, and he is the one who can disentangle. He is the one who can deliver. He is the one who can dip deep down into the depths and draw you out. What do you do? You remember. You remember. You remember that if he answered Jonah, he will answer you. And he will answer you despite your circumstances. Oh, Grace Church, humble yourself, draw near to him, go to him, and cry out. Let's take our second application point. If our first one is that we are to cry out, here's what I want you to do as you pray, as you cry out. I want you to cry out with specific sins. Too many times I hear people praying generalized glosses, generic glosses like, oh, Father God, please forgive us of all our sins. Oh, Father God, please forgive me of my sins I committed today. We keep it at a general level and we won't drill down. We won't go deep. There is something liberating when you confess specific sin to the Lord. When our prayers are marked by, I did X. It caused Y. It brought Z damage to person A. There is a liberating power there. You feel like your sternum is being cracked open and the Savior is going to surgery on your soul. Oh, friends, we cannot keep it generalized. We must confess. We must confess the specifics. Oh, friends, you cry out. Oh, Father God, I am the one who caused this situation. Even if the other person has sinned against you and you're sinning back, we still have to point the finger in and say, here is my part, here is my role in this. I see it, I own it. Oh, Father, save me, save the situation. Grow me, grow this other person. Did you see how specific and detailed Jonah's eyesight was under the waters? Wasn't that detailed and vivid seaweed wrapped around my head, base of mountains in between two mountains? Like, wasn't that hyper-vivid? There is something about the Lord when he gets your attention, it puts a lens in place and you see your situation with a clarity and a focus that no glasses can bring. You see the pain, you see the damage, you see what you have wrought between you and the Lord and he is helping you to see much more clearly, he's helping you to see the specifics. Please don't settle for generic generalizations. Confess, cry out, but specifically as you do, he will answer you. 
and he will answer you regardless of your circumstances. He will answer you despite your guilt. He will answer you despite your circumstances. How else will he answer you? This one might be the hardest. He will answer you despite your underlying idolatry. He will answer you despite your underlying idolatry. Let's read verse 8. It says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, as I read this text, that feels like whoop, we just took a left-hand turn, like a 90-degree very quick turn. We pulled the e-brick, you know, turned. Why? There's been no mention of idolatry. Where is this coming from? What's happening? Why does Jonah all of a sudden go to idolatry? I think as he's at the base, the foundation, the root of the mountains, it's become clear. Oh, idolatry is the root, the foundation, the base of sin. Where there is sin, there is idolatry. In the book of James in the New Testament, Jesus' own brother says it this way. Go with me to James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. It reads this way. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire, the, we, the roots, produce the stalk, the stem of sin. Do you see that? It's what he just said. Well, when I desire something that's not of the Lord, what do we call that? There you go, idolatry, very good. That is idolatry. So we can read that passage now this way and read it faithfully. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own very good. Then idolatry, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is what is happening in Jonah's life, literally. Brothers and sisters, we like to say, where there is smoke, there is, where there is sin, there is idolatry. Yes, we must own this. We must own this. In fact, let's ask the question, what was Jonah's idolatry? Like we know the stock, we know the sin running away from Nineveh, right? Going over to Tarshish, right? Like those are the two leaves on the stem. What's, what's the root bed? What's the root? I'm starting to sound like y'all. What's the root bed? Right? All right, never mind. Let's move on. It's really root. All right, but here's the thing. What is the root bed of Jonah's sin? What is the idol lying underneath? It is this. Nineveh was a major military power. They were the largest threat to Israel's physical security, to its borders, to her economy, to her freedom, to her way of life. Jonah goes in being called to preach, repent, and turn to Nineveh. Jonah knows the Lord's probably going to do that. That's why he's sending me. If the Lord smokes Nineveh because they do not repent, Jonah's way of life, his home country, is safe. Do you see what's happening? He is withholding salvation. He is not obeying his Lord God. Why? Because he is elevating his security, his comfort, his way of life, his country, his people, his homeland, his own home. Can we say his patriotism? He is elevating all of those things above God's clear call, God's demands, God's commands. That is the sin below the sin. Where there is smoke, there is fire. Where there is sin, there is an idol. Here's the remarkable thing. When we get to Jonah chapter 4, as many of you know, we're going to find out that that idol is still there. Go home, read Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. 
This is like a partial turn, a partial repent, a partial change, right? This is why we put the word progressive before sanctification. We change in increments. We change in steps. Jonah's changed a little, but he hasn't changed a lot. There is more work still to be done. The idol is still there. And besides that, despite that, the Lord God answers Jonah even with an idol in place. Do you see his goodness, his kindness, his love, and his mercy. Do you want that? Have you known that? In fact, Grace Church, have you come to grips with the fact that where there is sin in your life, that means there is an idol in your life, and it means there is a false god somewhere rooting around in your heart. This is the horror of idolatry. Where there is an idol, there is false worship. Where there is an idol, there is a false God being served. Where there is an idol, someone or something other than the God of the Bible is receiving your affection, your devotion, your praise, your service, your thoughts, your energy, and your worship. Do you see why we take sin so seriously? Do you see why God takes it so seriously? Let's make this horror real. Let's illustrate it, right? Out of all the character defects out there, I'm not picking on anyone in particular, I promise. Let's take gossip. Let's take gossip. What's the sin below the sin? What's the idol underneath gossip? A young lady writing for Relevant Magazine named Callie Glorioso Mays says she is a gossip and she has four idols that come to bear when she gossips. The first one is her need for acceptance. The second one is her need to get even. The third one is her need to feel superior because she feels insecure deep down. And the fourth one is her need to control or manipulate events around her. Let's not take all four of those. Let's take one. Let's take acceptance. When we have the sin of gossip and there's the idol of acceptance, let's just break this down and let's explore this. Let's look at our need to be included. When a person comes to us for a juicy morsel and we don't want to say no, What are we worried about? What's really going on? We're craving and wanting that other person's approval. We're wanting their acceptance. What's the other way that gossip happens and spreads? It's not someone coming to me, but it's when I walk by a group of people, I hear something, ooh, my ears perk up, and hey, what's going on? Right? And we enter into it. When we realize it's gossip and we do I walk away? I don't want to seem judgy, right? But when we don't walk away, what's going on? We're craving that group's approval and acceptance. Do you see that? Do you see how this works? Do you see the sin below the sin? Do you see the idol at play? Here's a sad tragedy. In Jesus Christ, you have all of the acceptance, you have all of the approval that you will ever need. When we choose their acceptance, their approval over Jesus' approval, we're saying this, Jesus, you're not enough. Your cross isn't enough. Your perfect life wasn't enough. The tomb may be empty, but I'm not filled up. You've brought me to a father who has adopted me, who has accepted me, who approves of me, who smiles at me, but that's not enough. I need more, Jesus. Do you see what we're saying and what we're doing? Do you see what's underneath the waves in our hearts? Friends, there are times in this life that God will bring us face to face with our sin. We will see, we must see, we must embrace that it's not just that we went cold to the Lord in those seasons, it's that we went alive to other things. You will see 
that you can't blame it on your brokenness. We can't blame it on a victim mentality or mindset, what other people have done to me. The devil did not make you do it. You didn't get sucked in. You didn't just go along to get along. You didn't even fall. We jumped, we chased, we ran after something that we wanted more than the Lord Jesus. Oh, friends, when we do that, we're forsaking his steadfast love. We're forsaking his grace. We're forsaking his gospel. What do we do? What do we do? If that landed harsh, Pastor John, what do we do? What do we do? You cry out. You cry out. If he answered Jonah, he will answer you. If he answered Jonah, despite his idolatry that's still there, he will answer you. He is too good. He is too kind. In Christ, he loves you too much not to answer. Would you ignore your child? He does not do that either. No, we must return to the gospel. We must cry out. If he answered Jonah, he will answer you. So like Jonah, we cry out, but we don't just cry out. We don't just cry out confessing specific sin. We cry out asking for his help. We cry out asking him to help us see the idol, to help us see how it's vanity, how it's worthless, how it's futile. We ask him to help us see what we already have in Jesus and how he does it better. He gives it more, and he gives it for all eternity. We ask him to return us to his steadfast love And when you do, when you cry out, he will answer you. He will answer you despite your underlying idolatry. What a father. What a savior. There's one lesson left to learn, and it's this. He will answer you in ways that you do not expect. Grace, are you seeing the father's heart for you? Are you seeing his compassion, his mercies? You really can draw near to him. Let's close here. Let's close here. Let's go all the way back to the end of Jonah chapter 1, read the first verse in chapter 2, and then bookend it by reading the last verse in chapter 2. So we're going to take the start of chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. Hear this. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. Friends, I think the lesson is obvious right there. I'm not sure of what exactly Jonah prayed. Would you send an airplane, a jet pack, a Navy SEAL? I don't know. I'm not sure of that, but I'm pretty sure he did not ask for a big fish. I'm pretty sure he did not ask to be in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, maybe three hours tops, right? We're not sure. We're not sure. I'm pretty sure he didn't ask to be vomited up. Pardon me for this but with other digested food. I'm pretty sure he did not ask for that. This makes the point obvious. God will answer our prayers, and he will do it in ways that we do not expect. There's so many directions we could take this one, but I want to take it in two places. First is this. When God answers our prayers in unexpected ways, it will probably be uncomfortable. It will probably be uncomfortable Being in the belly was miserable. It was uncomfortable. I have lived in Houston, but I'm pretty sure being in the belly of the whale was more humid. Some scientists will tell you that in the belly of a whale or the belly of a fish means you're at minimum in 104 degrees with no AC. Moreover, you are in the midst of rotten, digesting food that is on its way out. 
Those acidic enzymes are bleaching your skin, and I have no clue what the smell is like, but I have worked on a horse farm, I have worked on a cattle farm, and I can tell you it's probably not pleasant. Oh, friends, it will not be comfortable. I think the Lord God is showing Jonah, hey, Jonah, this is what your sin is like before me. And that's what the Lord God will do with us. It will probably not be comfortable, no. Stripping away our idolatry is never comfortable. They're lodged too deep. Changing an eating disorder is painful. Giving up an addiction means you go through withdrawal. And I say both of those wanting to be very kind-hearted towards mental health issues. Giving up an affair means facing your partner's pain and hurt, but a lot of people don't realize it means facing the pain and the hurt of the person you cheated with. There's a stripping away, and it's painful. How about taming our tongues? Learning to control our tongue, whatever the sin is, is not easy as God builds self-control in you and in me. So often in the Old Testament, change in Christ is compared to a refiner's fire. Very good. The Lord God is allowing those impurities to bubble up to the surface so he, by the Spirit, through his word, can scrape them off the top. It will not be comfortable. The second thing that I want to hone in on is this. When God gives us an unexpected answer, it will probably not be answered all at once. We have this myth that prayer is like all or none when it comes to an answer. It's yes or no. Sometimes the Lord God says a little bit at a time. Jonah was not saved right away. Our Lord God let him go down to the depths. Our God did not zip Jonah to Nineveh on a nonstop flight. No, it took 72 hours. Salvation from your own distress may take time. Whether it's being uncomfortable, whether it is God taking his time, cry out to him. He will answer you but he will answer you in ways that you don't expect. Grace Church, we close with this. Do you see the Lord's redeeming love towards Jonah? Do you see God's redeeming grace towards you? Despite your guilt, despite your circumstances, despite the idolatry lying underneath, do you see his grace? Do you see that he will forgive? Do you see that he will lean in when you turn to him? He does not know how not to. This can seem so hard to believe. It seems too good to be true, and when we're in that place, we will struggle to cry out to him. So how do we fill our faith? How do we fill our faith with the goodness of God, with the reality of his redeeming love, with the might of his mercy? Here's what we do. You already know what's coming. We look to the greater salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We have already seen that Jesus is the one who went into a deeper, darker belly for three days and three nights. We've already seen that Jesus is the one who was thrown overboard into a fiercer storm. Today we see this. Jonah is the one who went down to an underwater garden wrapped in seaweed at the base between two mountains. And it was there in that underwater garden that he cried out for salvation and his prayer was heard. Jesus Christ is the true and better Jonah. Why? Because Jesus Christ, when he faced the deeper storm of God's wrath, went to a different garden to pray. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And where is it located? Let's bring up the map. Where is the Garden of Gethsemane located? 
It's located in a valley between two mountains, the Mount of Olives and the very Temple Mount that Jonah was praying to. Do you see the beauty of how Jonah points forward to Jesus? Because it's in that garden, it's in that garden that Jesus' prayer, Jesus' prayer, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, was not answered with yes. Why? Why? Why was Jonah's prayer answered, but Jesus' prayer was not? Go with me to verses 5 through 6. Let's go through them again. Let's read them through the lens of Jesus Christ. It is because he is the only one who could let the waters close over him to take his life in our place. He is the only one who could let the crown of thorns be wrapped around his head. He is the only one who could go down to the land of death and not be saved, but actually die for you and for me. Why did he do this? He did this so that when his life was brought up from the pit, there is the guarantee and the security, the down payment, that your life will be brought up from the pit as well, despite your guilt, despite your circumstances, and despite the underlying idolatry rattling around in your heart and in mine. He took those things down to death, and he left them there when he rose. He did not save us in the way that we expect, but he has done it, and now you and I get to cry out, not just with the cry of salvation, but with the cry of verse 9. Let's read that together. You have answered me, O Lord. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice my life to live for the one who sacrificed for me. With a voice of thanksgiving, I will vow to serve the one who kept his vow to serve me so well. Amen, hallelujah. What a savior. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to him, but he has given it to you. And if he will do all of that for you in Jesus Christ, then how much more will he answer your cry for help despite your guilt, despite your circumstances, and despite the underlying idolatry? Grace Church, go, turn, call out to him. Call out to him in your distress. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we cry out. Father God, we probably have people who are in their own messes of their own making. Father, we have people... Father, who are going down. The seaweed is covering, it is wrapping. They are at the base of the mountains, and Father, it is a scary place for them to be. Oh, Father God, I pray that they would turn first and cry out to you. I pray that they would confess particular sin, specific sin, and really own their role in the mess. Father God, I pray that they would not just cry out and confess, but they would cry out and ask that you would help them see like Peter, that you would sift their souls, Father, and help them see the idolatry, but to help them see the beauty of the gospel. Oh, Father, let that propel prayers of praise as we cry out from our crises. We love you, Father, and we praise you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, amen.